pray together. Our Father, thank you for that truth. Thank you for that king, king who does hold the hope of the world in his hands, our king, King Jesus. It's to him that we pray, to him that we ask that he would be pleased to open up our hearts, to penetrate deep to our soul, and teach us the good things of Christ, that we might be people who live the good news of Jesus Christ. Thank you, Father, for the lessons learned, for the life you've given to us, for the love you have for us. And now we ask that as your word is open before us, that we would have hearts that respond carefully to the things we know and learn, the Holy Spirit of God might move in our lives and that, Father, people who don't know you might see the light of your presence and respond in faith. The saving work of Jesus Christ, I pray in his name. Amen. Is it just me or is it really hard to find peace and quiet these days? Honestly. Um, I I find there's just a background noise continually causing a distraction in our lives. And uh, whether it's TV programming or I I don't know what it is. I don't know whether the new sound technician vision is is to have all of this background noise so that you can't even hear dialogue anymore. I I find it very frustrating. You you turn on a sports program and they've got the, the crowd noise up full blast and this guy's trying to to say some very important insights about sports that I'm dying to listen to. And I can't hear it because there's a big crowd noise of distraction. Is it just me? Are you hearing that? Honestly, there's a balance problem. And I really think that it's a, it's a metaphor for what's happening in our lives as well. I think there's a, a lot of background noise in our lives that is crowding out the important dialogue and message of God. Background noise of relationship tension. Background noise of being distracted by um, uh, sinfulness and, and, um, and draw to sinfulness. Uh, there's a, a number of background noises, I think, that are just closing in on us and, and, and putting um, God's voice so far in the background that we're not listening to Him. I think it's true that as the background noise of our lives goes up, the internal depth of our spiritual sensitivity becomes more shallow. It's been a tough year for some people. The background noise is the fiery darts of fear, whether it be health concerns or financial challenges. It's possible that the ears of our heart are becoming deaf to the sound of God. That's a dangerous place to be. We stop paying attention to Him. When the balance is out of whack, the distractions drown out the intended message. Would you open your Bibles this morning to Luke chapter 1? Sometimes God has to um, do something dramatic to shut out the background noise of our life so we will hear the message again. We've been studying the, uh, the life of Zechariah and Elizabeth and there was a lot of background noise in Zechariah's life. It seems that he wasn't paying attention to the voice of God. The real test for whether or not you are being drowned out by background noise is 
The real hearing of God's word shows, it up, shows itself up in your life by the believing and obeying and doing of God's word. It's a test. How's it going? It seems that something had been allowed to erode in Zechariah's life. I would suggest that sometimes the distraction and the distracting noises are most acutely experienced by those who are at the front line of service, like Zechariah, like so many of you. In fact, last weekend, I, I heard some numbers like we had 80 people in just our hospitality section working. We had, I don't know, Pastor Steve in, in the music department. There must have been a, over 100 people. When you're on the front line, sometimes the distracting noises are really acutely felt. But also, sometimes when you're on the front line of service, spiritual pride sort of creeps up in your life and grows louder and more prominent than the voice of God. Yet so busy in the rituals and traditions of uh, our religious practice that we stop listening to the voice of God. That's why the Apostle Paul in mentoring young Timothy, said to him, watch your life and doctrine closely. Not just your doctrine. It's not good enough, Timothy, to know everything. You need to live it as well. So be careful. Sometimes God shuts down these distracting physical senses to open up new levels of spiritual sensitivity all over again. If you remember Zachariah's life, he, he wasn't speaking correctly. He had stopped saying the things of God. And he wasn't listening carefully. He was listening to what everybody else was telling him. If you paid attention to him, he, he, he was all wrapped up in uh, how he was physically. I, I'm, I can't listen to the word of God. I'm too old. I, I'm, I, I can't have a child. I'm too old. The voices in the background were telling him that. He couldn't hear the spiritual voice of God that was saying, I intend to cause you to be a father. So he was granted some time to think deeply about his life. He had become hard of hearing spiritually wasn't relating to God's voice, participated in the sin of unbelief, and now needed some time to think through what really mattered in life, what being a priest of God really meant, what, how, what really matters, to get a fresh grip on his life. And he preaches a sermon that took at least nine months to create. That's what I want to share with you this morning. Luke chapter 1, verse 68. This is the sermon. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come and has redeemed his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he said through his holy prophets of long ago. Salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show mercy to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath he swore to our father Abraham to rescue us from the hand of our enemies and to enable us to serve him without fear 
in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, as he held his little son John in his hands, you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High. For you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him, to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the path of peace. When God is breaking up your spiritual pride or whatever it is that's distracting you, you can either ponder or pout. And it seems to me in reading through this that that Zechariah chose to ponder the things of God rather than pout about the fact that he couldn't speak. When Zechariah emerges from this time, he actually comes out praising God. Did you notice in verse 68? Praise be to God. That's how I know that he wasn't pouting. He came out of this thing praising the Lord. Recognizing and reestablishing his life that God outgraces sin every time. Paul wrote that to the Romans in Romans 6.20. Though sin abounds, grace does much more abound. Zechariah is living proof to that. And so he wrote the greatest sermon, not only the one that took him the longest to write, but the greatest sermon of his life on the other side of his sinfulness. Take note of that. Those of you who might be discouraged or disappointed or God has you in a time of trial or maybe in a place where he wants to get your attention all over again, he wrote the greatest sermon of his life on the other side of his sinfulness. Why do I say that? Well, it's the one recorded in Scripture. Can you imagine Keith writing a sermon and having it all for all time recorded in, in the Bible and the Scriptures? Wow. I want to share with you this morning three lessons that I think he learned. He, I think he learned others out of his spiritual limp that I think are helpful. We need just a little bit of background information to... Uh, help us with this though so let's start reading at verse 57 and catch up with the story when it was time for elizabeth to have her baby she gave birth to a son her neighbors and relatives heard that the lord had shown her great mercy and they shared her joy on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child and they were going to name him after his father zachariah but his mother spoke up and said no he is to be called john They said to her, there is no one among your relatives who has that name. And they made signs to his father to find out what he would like to name the child. Evidently, not only was Zechariah unable to speak, but he had become deaf as well. He asked for a writing tablet. And to everyone's astonishment, he wrote, his name is John. Immediately. His mouth was opened and his tongue was loosed and he began to speak, praising God. The neighbors were all filled with awe and throughout the hill country of Judea, people were talking about all these things. Everyone who heard this wondered about it, asking, what then is this child going to be? For the Lord's hand was with him. I think the first lesson that Zechariah learns from this spiritual limp time is he learned to take God's word seriously. That's one of our core essentials here at Calvary Baptist Church. 
We take God's word seriously. Uh, sometimes you have to learn that all over again. Sometimes you have to learn it the hard way. Zachariah, in his case, was learning it the hard way. He asked for the writing tablet, it says here, to everyone's astonishment. He wrote, his name is John, which means God is gracious. He had forgotten. He had forgotten because of all the distracting noises in his life that God is sovereign and God is gracious. And now he had a nine-month suspension to learn about it all over again. In the face of custom... Verse 61, because it says there, wait a second, you don't name your firstborn son some random name. He's supposed to be little Zachariah, Zachariah Jr. That's the way you do it. Amid all that cultural and custom pressure and all the people's expectations and the pressure from all the distracting noises around you and all the people who The noise of the crowd, which can sometimes be louder in our ears than God's voice and his word, at that moment you have a choice. A choice on whether you are going to accept the voices around you and fall prey to sin, which leads to death, or you're going to listen to that still small voice voice of God and his word and experience life. That's why Paul wrote to the Romans in Romans 6.21 and said, What benefit did you reap at that time from the things you are now ashamed of? The, The way you used to live. Why would you go back to that? Of not taking God's word seriously. Those things result in death, he writes. What's God's commentary on the fact that that Zechariah was now paying attention to him? It says there in the text, immediately his mouth was loosed. His ears could hear. Experiencing the blessing of God. Relationship with God was back in business. It's fullest sense. So what about us for 2010 that is fast approaching? Can you imagine a decade into 2000? Are we going to be people who praise God and do what he tells us to do? That's the vision. That's uh, that's the question of the the new year. Are, Are you going to praise God, glorify God with your life, and do what he tells you to do when he tells you to do it? No staggering around to the left or the right. Because he brings words of light and life to us. Well, I think you learned to take God's word seriously. And we've got to learn that. But secondly, when our choices seem to chase God from our lives, a time of trial chases you back into his presence. Have you found that? You noticed that? I think that's what Zechariah learned. I'm fully convinced that somewhere in that nine-month period, there was... A murky time for Zechariah where he was feeling as if God had abandoned him. That God had disappeared. Sometimes it feels like God leaves you. And he needed a fresh restart in experiencing God all over again. In a way with spiritual sensitivity and humility and passion. And I think it happened. It says there in verse 67, his father, Zechariah, 
was filled with the Holy Spirit. These uh, were silent years. Uh, Dr. Luke is, um, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, sending a very important message to us all. See, the time between the last prophet Malachi and now this, the last prophet of the old covenant time, John the Baptist, was about 450 years of what seemed like silence from God. The prophets had always been speaking, and now there was no new prophecy. Oh, God's word was available to them. But they were used to this ongoing dialogue with God. And now, nothing. There had been silence. It, it seemed to the people of God that maybe God had disappeared. Maybe he had gone away. Maybe he had forsaken them. The Romans had now dominated their world. They were under oppression after oppression. Where is God? Maybe Zechariah as a priest, hearing some of those distracting noises, had just somehow in his own heart given up a little bit on God. I wonder if Zechariah was beating himself up, saying, why didn't I listen to God? Why was my first and automatic reaction when God gave me his word a fresh and new insight from God. Why did I automatically choose to disbelieve Him? What is wrong with my heart? Why would I turn away from God? And now look at me. I can't speak. I can't hear. And God is, surely He's left me. Surely I will never have my role again as a priest. There are others of God's servants who have known that kind of turmoil in their life. I think of King David. I think of his deep and agonizing prayer in Psalm 51. Where he cries out to the Lord, Have mercy on me, O God. According to your unfailing love, according to your great passion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth. Sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Surely you desire truth in the inner parts And God, I am sorry that I haven't given it to you. You teach me wisdom in the inmost place. Cleanse me from hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways. And sinners will turn back to you. Save me from blood guilt, O God. The God who saves me and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice or I'd bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, 
you will not despise. Zechariah opens up his own mouth and praises God for his forgiveness. And says this, praise be to the Lord, verse 68, the God of Israel, because he has come. Lord, I thought you'd left me. I I thought you'd gone away. I thought you'd left our people. But praise God, he hasn't gone away. The word here is visited us. He shows up. the centerpiece of the Christmas reality. This is what Christmas is all about, a reminder that that God is there, that God has come, that God has come to be among us, that he will never leave us or forsake us. He's always pictured as the one who comes looking for us, just as he promised. The very point of Zachariah's failure, God visits The living God, creator of the universe. Imagine that. In spite of who we are and how horribly sinful we are, he comes to live among us, to give himself that we might live, to put his life on the line. Our sin chases us away from him. But he doesn't go anywhere. He doesn't leave. He doesn't go away. His forgiving grace chases us back into an awareness of his presence in our life. That's what Zachariah is experiencing all over again, filled with the Holy Spirit, because he has come and visited us. And thirdly, I, I think Zachariah learned not only has he come and visit us, but he realized that God alone brings you from burden and bondage. You can try other things. But Christ alone is the horn of salvation. He says here, not only does God come and visit us and come to be with us, but he's redeemed his people. What an important theological truth and reality. Uh, The word redeem means to, to obtain the release of something by paying something off. It It means buying something back. God has come to redeem us. Not not to come and look at us and wag his head and say how horrible these people are. The God of creation, the Lord of glory, the holy God, the sinless one, has come to be among us. That's the Christmas story. To live among us and have compassion for us and mercy toward us and reach out to us and offer his life as the redemption price to buy us back out of the slave market of sinfulness. You can try other things, but they won't redeem you. This wasn't merely the uh, story of preparing a couple of baby showers. The song of Zechariah is a description of the one-two punch team of, uh, that will reset the calendar of the world. He outlines the watershed issue between life and death. Whether you are released from your sin or you choose not to be, 
whether you are redeemed or you remain unredeemed. That is the essential watershed of life. And Zechariah goes on to tell us how. How this thing unfolds. He looks at his little child in verse 76 and says, And you, my child, have been called to prepare the way. You are the prophet of the Most High. John, you you are the fulfillment of the prophecies of the Old Covenant. You are the fulfillment of, of Isaiah 40. A voice of one calling in the desert, Prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the wilderness a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level, and rugged places a plain. The glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all mankind together will see it. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken, and you, John, are the fulfillment of the very word of God. Here in my arms. What an assignment you have to make straight the highway for the king. To clear the obstacles so that it's easier for the king to get through. It's the picture of the ancient Near East city that uh, had received notice that the king was going to visit. And whenever the king was going to visit the town, there was responsibility of the, the local people to take care of the roadways. To go out and make sure that the, the roadway whereby the king would come to town would be all cleared up. The potholes would be filled in with quick asphalt, quick fill. That the, that the bumps would be leveled off and there'd be great. And there'd be any obstacles, get those logs off the road. The king needs a clear pathway. And you, John, you have this job. What a responsibility. When I was, uh, the first time I went to Odessa, Ukraine, I was with... Uh, our mission partner, John Taylor, and he said to me, you're going to notice something. He says, you're going to notice when you get to the airport and you, you come out of the airport on the roadway from the airport that will lead to the, to the main government buildings in Odessa will be all very well maintained and will look really good and all of that. And as soon as we go on through the roads, you're not going to believe what they're like. And sure enough, all tree-lined, everything set up perfectly, so that the communists could put on a good show when other dignitaries from other places would come and land in their airport and they would see, oh, isn't this, isn't communism wonderful? Isn't it working? Practice of taking care of the roads for dignitaries is still the same. But this dignitary, this responsibility, wasn't taking care of roads filling potholes, leveling hills. It was pointing out to people the potholes in their own life, the obstacles that they would allow to crowd out their heart so that God could not come. John the Baptist's responsibility was to to proclaim to the people the reason why they need a Savior in the first place. That's what preparing the way was all about so that their hearts would be hungering and thirsting for forgiveness. 
He, he was answering the question, why do you need a savior? That's our role, you know. That's the role of Christians. That's the role of the church. We still prepare the way for the Lord. We prepare hearts. Show them where they have gone off track, where their hearts are rebellious toward God, where they have collected things in their lives that, that are obstacles and hurdles to the things of God. So that ultimately people will realize, you know what? I need a savior. I need a change. I need someone to come into my life and, and renovate the coldness of my heart. Zechariah hurries from the description of his own son. He only gives his, his own son one verse in his sermon. The real sermon's about Jesus Christ. The reason that he, John the Baptist, was preparing the way is that following the rising sun alone is the way out of darkness. There is no other way. Sin, by the way, pays, it pays you in death. For the wages of sin is death. But Jesus buys you back with his own blood that was shed at Calvary's cross so John, his credentials, his prophet and forerunner to set up the highway, he's the one who is responsible for surfacing the why question. Uh, for whom? For whom did he prepare the way? It says here in the text, for the horn of salvation. Now that's a term that we're not familiar with. The horn of salvation, what is he talking about? Well, there's a few texts in the Psalms that help us with that, but the horn, of course, is the is a reference to power. You're talking about the ancient Near East. They didn't have bulldozers or tanks. The most powerful thing that they were looking at was a, a massive ox with gigantic horns, a powerful, powerful animal. So the, the, the picture for them, the illustration for them of true power was this massive horn and he's referencing the coming Christ who would be the power center of God's salvation. The concentration of God's salvation work is powered in Jesus Christ. The horn of salvation. The raw power. Don't misjudge. Zachariah saying, don't misjudge this thing. There's coming a baby who will lie in a manger. He will look non-threatening. He will look non-demanding. He, he's a cloth-wrapped baby, but, but don't misjudge this one. Uh, Bethlehem is amazing, but you ain't seen nothing yet. Because this amazing horn of salvation, the raw power of God, the credentials, the pre-birth resume of this one, he says, is from the house of his servant, David. This, this is one who comes as a king. Over in Matthew or Luke chapter 2, verse 11, uh, the further credentials, it, it is a Savior. He is a Savior. He is Christ, the Anointed One. He is the Lord, the Master, the, the one God of the universe. Zachariah's suspension had granted him time to think deeply about what really matters and theologically reflect, reflect on the Scriptures and what this was all about. 
to get a grip on his own personal need and the need of the people around him. And why has this one come? This Christ child? Verse 77, to give people the knowledge of salvation <coughs> through the forgiveness of their sins. Now this word knowledge, there's a number of ways knowledge can be interpreted, but this particular word knowledge is the word for experience, that people might experience salvation. Before I had kids, I had a wealth of knowledge about parenting. I was an expert. Just ask me. I read about parenting. I had studied parenting. I looked at parents and thought, you don't know anything. If I had your kid, I could raise your kid better than you are. I was Mr. Knowledge. But when I had kids, I have now become Mr. Experience. I have a different knowledge about parenting now. It's not just about reading or watching or looking. It's about living it. It's about experiencing it. That's what Zechariah is saying here about this salvation. This is not salvation you read about or you watch or you look at other religious people and think that you're part of it. This is salvation by knowledge, by experience. It's a whole different thing. And here's the key. Through the forgiveness of their sins. Unless you have your sins forgiven by an act of God, you cannot know salvation. You cannot have this knowledge of salvation he's talking about here unless you have received an act of God in your life to forgive you of your sins. That's the message he came to bring. That's the reality. There are all kinds of religious people around. They know about salvation. They even tell people about salvation. They tell people about sin. And they tell people about Jesus. And they tell people about Christmas truths. But unless you have experienced personally an act of God to forgive you of your sins, you are not experiencing Salvation. This was promised by prophecy. In Jeremiah chapter 31, 33. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds, write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother saying, know the Lord. Because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. He says, they will know me because I will forgive them. And only because I will forgive them. And what it was the upside of all of this? To shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death. To guide their feet in the pathway of peace. 
those living in the darkness of sinful ignorance or the shadow of death because of being unforgiven, defeated because they choose wrong pathways, discouraged and disappointed and weary and guilty and afraid and pessimistic and insecure because they are not saved. The picture here, of course, of the darkness is like travelers who are caught out in a journey and sun sets before they anticipated and, and suddenly they're cast into utter darkness. They can no longer see the pathway. They don't know where they're going and now they're fearful. They're not in a shelter. They're not, there's no imminent rescue. They're concerned about the marauding thieves or wild animals that might destroy them. That's the picture. Then all of a sudden, the sun of righteousness bursts over the landscape and shines light on the pathway and chases fear away. Zechariah said, that's the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of your sins. Because the rising sun has come to us from heaven, a Savior who took our sins to a place called Calvary. And there he became the redemption price to buy us back out of sinfulness. Our responsibility is to repent, to confess our sin, and ask him to forgive us. That he might be our Savior and our Lord. That we might have the knowledge by experience of salvation. For without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So the question I put before you this morning, which is the most important question that will ever be asked and ever be answered, is have you been forgiven by Jesus Christ? Zachariah was afforded some time to think. I'm going to give you a few moments to think as Bronwyn comes to sing our closing song this morning. And then I'm going to come back and ask you this question all over again. Our Father and our God, you came for the very reason to rescue people, to save people from their sinfulness. You came for the people in this room to save us through the forgiveness of our sins. So, Lord, the message has been put forth again. And now it's about the work of the Holy Spirit to confirm in people's hearts that they are truly His or to convince and convict others that they are not but can be because you're drawing them to yourself. So Lord, I pray that the Spirit of God would work mightily in this place so that there is no person that leaves here 
without the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. For Jesus' sake. unfolds. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to his own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today, in the town of David, the Savior has been born. He is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly, A great company of heavenly hosts appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to people God saves through his forgiveness. Would you bow your heads with me? I wonder how many here this morning can say, I know I have been forgiven by an act of God and I experience salvation and I will be in heaven it's as good as if I were there right now would you slip up your hand thank you not every hand went up which means some of you are not convinced or not sure that you have been forgiven So this morning, as God's word says, let light shine out of darkness. He made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. This morning, you could repent of your unbelief and your rebellion and your self-centeredness and your unfaithfulness and your sinfulness and invite the Lord to forgive you of your sins so you can experience salvation. Is there anyone in here this morning as we close this service that would say, Rick, that's what I want for my life. I, um, I'm not experiencing salvation. I know, I don't, I'm not sure of anything. I've read about it. I hang around about it. I guess I'm religious, but... I've never, ever asked the Lord to forgive me of my sins and come into my life and be my Savior. Is anyone here this morning would say that? Would just slip up your hand? I'm not going to embarrass you or anything, but I do want to pray for you. Is there anyone here in the service this morning? Another? Anyone else? You may not have another opportunity. 
to experience salvation. Our Father and our God, this is the message we believe. This is the message we celebrate and rejoice about. The message of a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who left heaven and came to live among us, put his life on the line for us, died on a cross, taking our sins to that cross, redeeming us by the purchase price, not of silver or gold, but of precious blood, the blood of Christ, that by receiving him, by receiving his forgiveness, by trusting in him, we might have eternal life and no salvation by experience. We believe this. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.